Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. Once again, I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDormand. This episode, we are continuing the novella, The Death of Dr. Island, this time getting all the way up to page 102. Last time we left off with our protagonist, Nicholas, meeting somebody else on this island where he's found himself and getting pummeled for trying to ease some food. Right. We pick up in the aftermath of the beating that Ignacio gave to Nicholas in that last episode, in that last section. Ignacio hit Nicholas so hard that he was knocked out. And when he regains consciousness, he's pretty messed up. His, his mouth is full of blood and he can barely open his left eye. Ignacio was gone and he also ate all of the fish. So it seems like Nicholas has gained nothing from this encounter. Dr. Island speaks to Nicholas, uh, sometimes as the waves, sometimes as the cries of seagulls. And we're going to learn a lot about the world in this conversation. I love this conversation. Dr. Island witnessed the fight because he can see everything that goes on. And knowing that fact now, Nicholas is surprised that Dr. Island didn't intervene, didn't stop the fight. Nicholas says that he's been in some bad places before, places where the staff would hose you down or even hit you, but he's never been in a place where they let patients do this much violence to each other. But Dr. Island says that although he can see and hear everything, he has no hands with which to intervene, a real personification, a really anthropomorphization here. But Dr. Island does warn Nicholas about Ignacio, that at least he can do, and he tells him that Ignacio is homicidal and therefore Nicholas should be cautious around him. And Nicholas also wants to know where they are, or at least he wants to know if they are on Earth, which is a place that he's never been. He's only seen pictures of or videos and heard of it. And they aren't. But Dr. Island says that this place is modeled on what Earth used to be like before all the pollution. And this bit of dialogue is pretty great. He says, I am more like Earth than Earth now is. If you were to take the best of all the best beaches of Earth and clear them of all the poisons and all the dirt of the last three centuries, you would have me. Hopefully throughout this series of recaps and discussion. I'm going to be able to convince our listeners and even you, Glenn, if you don't already agree (laughs) with me, that uh, we are meant to draw some connection between what Dr. Island is and some ideas about God. This story is wrapped up in a lot of different sorts of theological arguments. This section about Dr. Island allowing this horrible thing to happen to Nicholas is, in essence, really caught up with what in theological terms is called theodicy, or the problem of why God allows evil to exist. And I think it's one way to approach this story, is Wolf really looking closely at the problem of evil. And he really crams this story full of all the complexity that exists within that question. So just, I think we should keep our eyes open for the ways in which Dr. Island could be compared to God, or at least a Judeo-Christian God, and Nicholas's struggle with why bad things happen to him personally. Also in the section, we find Wolf's general pessimism about whether inhabiting other planets is really a solution for the problems that are facing Earth and the environmental problems that people have created due to a lack of stewardship. We know this is something that Wolf thinks an awful lot about. You know, if people were to clean all of the pollutants and poisons and dirt from the beaches, there would be beaches again, but there's not. There's just this spacefaring civilization that seems to take its problems with it. The clear implication is that people are not cleaning up after themselves or taking care of their natural environments and have gone to the stars looking for solutions. As we go, we're going to learn more and more about this spacefaring civilization, the problems that people have brought with them, and and maybe the toll that being out in space, being off Earth, the the planet for which humans are designed, have created within individual humans. I want to go back to, to thinking about theodicy again here. 
if we are thinking about this in religious terms, and we clearly should be, now that we know that Nicholas and Ignacio are patients, that this is some kind of medical facility, some kind of hospital, some place where patients are being treated, we can think of treatment in theological terms as it relates to purgatory, as purgatory, as this place that people go to receive a type of treatment to prepare themselves to to enter heaven, to, to correct the things that they did wrong uh, in their bodily life on earth. And something that's really great about this, even thinking again about the problem of evil, about theodicy, of course, is that uh, there is a classic tale about the problem of evil and the nature of evil that takes place on a tropical island just like this, right? That's the Lord of the Flies. The parallels, I think, couldn't be closer, certainly in, in the imagery here. So that's something we should be keeping in mind. We'll find as we as we go through the story that Wolf is pulling on all sorts of literary references about people stranded on islands to bolster the themes and the ideas that he's developing in this story. Right. And in fact, we're going to get some some other references to maybe not necessarily literature, but to other culture, to cultural belief systems when we meet our next character now, another patient. So Nicholas decides to follow Ignacio's tracks and even calls out for Ignacio and instead, he encounters a girl, a girl who is a little older and a little taller than he is, and she's named Diane. We're going to learn she's she's 19. And Diane is looking for her mother, and she would like to leave this island. She's hungry, it seems, though she says that she ate a bird recently. And she also says that she is a memory that has swallowed a bird. Uh, a very cool, very ominous line, but it's clear that something is maybe not quite right with Diane Diane also calls Nicholas a tot, and uh, this will give us a fun world-building clue here. Uh, Nicholas does not like this. Kids always want to be older than they are, right? And he says that he's not a kid. He sets fires to things, after all, right? And kids don't do that. But Diane is totally unfazed by this. She knows that he won't set a fire here because the weather is nice, and it has been for days. Though, when everyone is sad, it rains, and we'll get more on this connection later. For now, they continue to bicker even as they walk down to the water together. And Nicholas tells a story about a zero-G hospital he was at once when someone called him a name that he didn't like. When that person was asleep, he undid her restraints, and in her panic, she broke her nose and some fingers, and blood got everywhere. So Nicholas now has twice proclaimed to Diane, who's the person he's just met, he's proclaimed how violent he can be. And this is a big part of his self-image. Another thing that's a part of his self-image that, I, that I'd like to highlight is his tendency to start fires. And it's just something we want to keep in mind, given Ignacio's name. And as we develop, you know, as I suggested, maybe some of the more mythological aspects that Wolf is weaving into this story. And you're right, Glenn. Nicholas's identity is caught up in being violent. But Diane's identity is really that she's stuck inside of her own head. I mean, as you pointed out... Referring to yourself as a memory that has swallowed a bird is a strange identity claim to make. And we're going to see this bird in her stomach play a major role in this story as we as we continue along. We should also highlight, though, that especially if we're looking at this story in terms of a theodicy, that Nicholas just said that in the places where he was before, they would never let a patient do to Nicholas what Ignacio has. Yet Nicholas is telling stories about doing real damage to other patients. And it's unclear to me if he's warning Diane that he can't control his impulses or Glenn, you know, as I think you're suggesting, if he's threatening her and bragging about his actions, even justifying them in some way in order to impress her. 
Yeah, I think he actually is trying to impress her because he's a 14-year-old boy, 19-year-old young woman here. They're both naked. That's going to come back later in the in the story as well. And I think, yeah, he's trying to impress this slightly older person, this person who has uh, is only five years older than him, but is a woman while he is uh, really kind of in the first throes of puberty here. These are not the things that uh, uh, one should brag about if you were trying to impress someone you've just met to convince them to date you. Don't tell them about how you've abused other patients and uh, set fires to things. That's just a kind of, uh, that's not even a pro tip. That's just a regular tip. One more thing I want to say before we get into the next scene here, though, too, is just to make sure that we're pointing out that Diane as a name, this is a mythological name. It's the Roman name for Artemis. This is the hunter goddess of Greek and and Roman mythology, uh, who would be about this age and might, in fact, be wandering around naked in a forest like this. Uh, We might see some of this come back. Well, at this point, Dr. Island shows up again, and he's happy to see that Nicholas and Diane have met. But what he really wants is for them to go after Ignacio because Ignacio needs people. On their walk, Nicholas explains that he's had some brain surgery. Uh, This is why his head is scarred, and his corpus calorum has been severed. And and this is the part of the brain that allows the, the two hemispheres, the right and the left side, to interact with each other. And he claims that this has made him into two distinct people. He says, this half is, the, the, the half, the, the me that talks. Both halves of him, both of his identities can hear everything. But he, this me that talks, Nicholas, can only see out of the right eye. And, and so this is why he has to move his head around a lot. To, it's to have a normal field of view. The other him can see out of the left eye, but that's not the him that controls motor functions. So we get uh, an image here of a consciousness that's imprisoned inside this body. And this, of course, is something we've seen before in Wolf, though perhaps not quite in this way. And Diane thinks he's making this up to tease her because, well, frankly, it's a ridiculous story, right? I would not believe this if you came and told me this, Brandon, either. But Dr. Island intervenes again, and he's a monkey this time. And Dr. Island says that, yeah, this is true. This is in Nicholas's files. And Dr. Island explains that the doctors did this because Nicholas was having uncontrollable seizures, and this was the only way they could stop them. And this prompts Nicholas to actually talk about these seizures a little bit. He says that when they would happen, he would be unaware of what was going on with his body. He wouldn't feel himself biting his tongue or any of the other things that people would later tell him had had happened. Instead, really, he he felt like he had gone far away and had to come back, even though he didn't want to do that. And on top of that, he saw stuff that was going to happen, right? He, He says that he would have visions of the future, And he offers up an example here. He says that one time he saw himself dead, floating out in space with lights on either side of him. But his body was black and much of his face had worn away. This is an awful, awful image. But Diane, rather astutely here, points out that this hasn't happened yet. So this is not verifiable proof that he can see the future. So she wants an example of something that he saw ahead of time that has actually now come to pass. Something he saw, something he predicted that came true. But he won't. He says that if he did, she would not like the story, would not like the proof that he can give her. And so rather than talk about this anymore, Nicholas wants to know about Ignacio. And there's a bit here where we are told by Diane and also by Dr. Island that there are other patients here, uh, wherever here is, but not in a way that Nicholas can interact with. For now, he and Diane and Ignacio are essentially the only people here. And this is mysterious. And of course, Nicholas wants to know more. 
And so Diane offers to elaborate, but only in exchange for this example of something he saw ahead of time that actually came true, right? It's a real negotiation of information here, a barter system here. And I guess really information would be the only currency that you you have in the system. And so now we get a story about a girl Nicholas knew in one of his hospitals. Her name is Maya, and the two of them were in the same psychodrama group. What exactly a psychodrama is isn't clear, but it's a it's a kind of theater. Uh, the patients put on a kind of extemporaneous play for the doctors and other patients, in in which the the patients are taking on the the role of people important in one patient's life. And and so it seems that the setting of the play and the story itself somehow even maybe come out of the subconscious of the, the patients, not necessarily arranged ahead of time. And and I'm looking forward to seeing what you think about this, Brandon. But the, the point of this story is that Nicholas was aware that although Maya thought she was going home soon, going to be released from this hospital, Nicholas had seen that she would remain hospitalized and that she would die. This is something that haunts Nicholas until the very end of the story, I think. I mostly agree with your reading of what the psychodrama is. It does seem to be some sort of role-playing where one person gets to be themselves and everyone else somehow enacts others that populate the mental life of the one person who is playing themselves. And it's sort of a safe place to play out various situations that might happen when you leave the institution. It's practice for being around other people. And it's probably good practice for the other inmates to pretend to be normal people as well. But there are clearly safety nets at these institutions. And as we learn more about Dr. Island, we're going to find out that this is a place without any safety nets. And although Dr. Island thinks that this place might simulate society in some way, that he might be simulating society in some way, this is a far more dangerous place than society is for most of us. And Nicholas is really burdened by guilt or something when he is conveying this story about Maya to Diane. You know, it it almost seems to me as though he's suffering from a kind of Cassandra syndrome. He believes that he knows the future, but no one believes him. And so he questions the value of having these visions. Even the vision of his own death is something that we need to be curious about. And it may not be his death that he's seeing at all, but something else that he has yet to have a framework for understanding. I want to also just talk about the seizures that Nicholas is having. His his body is acting independently of his mind, or we might even say his body has a mind of its own. So he's taught his mind to retaliate against his body. He's got a very strong mind for a 14-year-old boy. Or it could be the case that the seizures are a type of gift, and he's having beatific visions or mystical visions. And I think we might be able to create a defense for Nicholas having maybe some elements of, you know, Christian mysticism within his life experience, uh, maybe involuntary. And I want to make sure we're highlighting that because it's going to play into our discussion of the story. And we can think of even the the, the ancient, the, the ancient Mediterranean, the, the Greco-Roman notion that epilepsy, which seems to be what Nicholas is suffering from here is a kind of gift from the gods. It's a, a maybe a double-edged sword of a, of a gift here, right? It has this curse of these seizures, but also denotes their favor and can provide some sorts of insights for them, like a special kind of spiritual genius as well. And that might be something that Wolf is playing with. Before we move on to, I do just want to emphasize the way that Nicholas is really cagey about answering any of Diane's questions about what happened with Maya, right? Nicholas never comes out and says that he tried to warn Maya and she didn't listen to him and therefore she died. Diane 
suggests that that's what happened and Nicholas doesn't quite deny or affirm it, right? It's a way of not quite lying, perhaps, right? But it also might just be that this is painful for him and he doesn't want to talk about it. And and so I think we should keep these two different readings of what's going on with Maya in mind because this is going to come back. All right. Also in this conversation, we get some more world building and I'm fascinated by these details, even if they don't necessarily all matter for the, the plot or at least the immediate plot. First, Diane is from what she calls the Trojan planets, which I, I think must mean the, the Trojan asteroids that share Jupiter's orbit. And some of them are big enough that you could put some small cities on them. Uh, we also learn that Nicholas marvels that Callisto is big enough to have its own gravity and that it's all domed in with its own air. So Wolf is thinking at least a little bit about the engineering problems of human colonization of the solar system, as of course he would. In fact, we know he thinks about this, right? But what really matters here is that it's going to rain. More importantly, it only rains when the dominant mood of the patients turns to sadness. And there are other features of this place that will change based on such moods. It's a, a kind of psychological climate control, I guess. And Dr. Island says that this is based on the observation that most people are soothed when their environment is in harmony with their emotions and they're anxious when it's not. And as examples for this, he says that an angry person becomes less angry in a red room and unhappy people are only exasperated by sunshine and birdsong. I am not sure that I agree with this observation, but I'm looking forward to talking about it in the discussion because I think this is a real underlying assumption in this story that is so much about human psychology. But Wolf has Dr. Island illustrate this point with a bit of verse. And missing thee, I walk unseen on the dry, smooth-shaven green, to behold the wandering moon, riding near her highest noon, like one that had been led astray through the heaven's wide pathless way. Yeah, this bit of verse is, uh, is from a John Milton poem called Il Penseroso, sometimes translated as the serious man, though it literally just means he thought. Uh, the poem is an ode to melancholy, capital M, the muse, that describes how the worship of melancholy can actually be a pleasurable experience because it leads to divine contemplation. Uh, this is a very close theme to something we'd find in, say, St. John of the Cross. You know, this this is a real dark night of the soul sort of poem, how going through this can lead to some sort of maybe catharsis or closeness with God. And so we have this mention of seizures and beatific visions or mystical visions caught up with this Ode to Melancholy and we're going to see more references to St. John of the Cross and, and Mount Carmel and the Carmelites in this story. So all of that is at play here. Alongside Wolf getting into what is known as environmental psychology in this section, and I think as we'll see in just a moment, that he believes that the mechanisms of environmental psychology have deep roots in the human psyche, and, and maybe not very healthy ones. In my reading of this, uh, as we'll see in just a second, I don't think Wolf is really fully endorsing environmental psychology, because I don't think he would endorse the attitudes of the people that Dr. Island talks about, and the deep wishes of humanity. I don't think Wolf has in mind that having those things fulfilled is actually good. As we're going along here, we are seeing more and more connections between this story and a story by John V. Marsh as we get these things like Milton and continuing to see the sort of emphasis on 
environmentalism in this story and also thinking about this as a story concerning naked people walking around trying to find food and having adventures along the way. Uh, it seems really clear that this is a story that Wolf thought up while he was working on a story by John B. Marsh, had all these books like Milton and so on on his desk and was taking down some notes. I'll get to that one next. It's always awesome for me just to see some hints of what his process is like and how many stories he can generate out of just reading one work of literature. Uh, it's, it's impressive. But on this note of the, the way the environment works, how it's connected to the psychological mood of the patients, we're going to get a bit more here about making it rain. Wolf has Dr. Island explain that making the environment respond to human thought is the, the core of magic, and it's the oldest dream of mankind. And here on Dr. Island, that dream has become fact, right? We, we've accomplished this as a species. And Diane is really interested in the idea that Dr. Island averages the emotions of the patients here, and, and she wants to know if one exceptionally emotional person could dominate the weather. The answer is, of, of course, yes, but it's never actually happened. On the other hand, Dr. Island says, if someone's emotions were that deep, that powerful, then that would be a person in great need. And in that case, don't we have a moral obligation to answer that need? It's a thorny question. And I think this is the first moment of this story where we see our main characters that we are asked to sympathize with, that these characters are being asked to think of themselves as secondary characters in another person's story, that their emotional disturbances, their distress, if it's not as powerful as somebody else's, uh, living in this odd faux community, that they need to sacrifice their own need to address their emotions for the sake of well-being of another. As I said, it's an extraordinarily thorny question, and I honestly couldn't tell you, having read this story many times, uh, what Wolf thinks the answer is to that question. <laughs> sometimes I think he's on Dr. Island's side, and sometimes I think he's absolutely against Dr. Island. Well, that's going to be the central question of this story, and therefore probably the central question of our discussion episode when we get there. Right. I mean, is Dr. Island being manipulative, or is he actually leading these two characters who are clearly unwell emotionally towards a healthy sense of self-sacrifice that is just really a basic requirement for living in a community or society with other people. So Wolf is really just sort of teasing these ideas that are going to take up the rest of the story. And it's just dropped in here in this kind of odd conversation. And I think it's incredible. Right. And in some ways here, the question about this person in great need is, should we cater to the whims of that person, go meet that person on their terms? Or is the responsible thing to do to bring them into the community on our terms, right? To rehabilitate them. I think that might be the sort of pole or the kind of spectrum that we're operating on here. And that is going to be the question here about how psychology functions or what psychology is for, how it should go about its business. It's going to be great to, to take this up when we've got the whole rest of the story behind us. At this point, too, Diane and Nicholas are also talking about their status as patients. And Nicholas insists that they are not sick. He says this specifically about Diane, who keeps referring to herself that way. And she says that she's often confused and has trouble controlling her emotions. Diane appeals to Dr. Island for help sorting this out. And, and Dr. Island says that sickness and health are abstractions. So maybe it's not a great question, right? But of course, 
that's not helpful. And he says that Diane is not physically ill, but that she has stopped functioning. And what he means by this is that she was failing out of her university and that she had largely stopped going to classes. And when she did go to class, she was a a nuisance to her professors and uh, a distraction to the other students. And Dr. Island here defines functioning by the example of Diane's parents. They buy and sell, they work, and they pay their taxes. That's functioning. I think we know pretty clearly that Wolf does not perhaps like that definition of of functioning, or at least like prioritizing functioning then. Nicholas doesn't care for this definition of wellness either, but Dr. Island says that this is how the world works, and his purpose is to help people be able to live in the world, to function in society. And he elaborates by saying that returning to a natural environment from the constructed environments that we live in, these built artificial environments, can be profoundly healing. I really love this section. I love Nicholas's hope that Diane isn't sick and that he isn't sick and that there's something wrong with the world. You know, he's creating this like uh, me and you against the world sort of attitude or relationship with Diane. And we get the first real crack in a theory of Dr. Island as a Judeo-Christian God sort of figure in this section, because I think that Wolf is trying to attack an argument uh, about God, uh, an atheistic argument maybe, that God is just an abstraction of the higher ideals of a society or culture. What would that God look like? How could he intervene if he were not different from the world, which is what Dr. Island claims to be. He claims to be the same as the world or the sum of world societies in some sense. Dr. Island then is an abstraction of society's basic values. You know, can he do anything to encourage ideas of flourishing or well-being if all that the society demands of its citizens is that they function properly within it? Is the social contract really just something that if we function properly, most of the time we're free to be left alone some of the time. And I think Wolf here is pointing to something deeper about the impact that people have on one another that he's seeing maybe slip away in the 1970s uh, as people are moving more and more towards individualism, a kind of hyper romantic worldview. And I, I think we're going to see in this story that romanticism, the Promethean man, Lucifer as hero, are really ideas he's attacking as being good for society. And the sense of going away or being alone or being able to individuate yourself from other people by abandoning society, by recuperating, um, is really met with Diane in this line about her parents being inside her. And the things inside her are very important to this story. I'm thinking here again of the, the bird that she eats. What Diane is saying here is that it doesn't matter if she isolates herself from her family or from her community because she carries those voices. She's internalized those voices from her parents or maybe other people in her society. What she actually needs help with, what she actually needs people for is to help her break away from that negativity that she carries around. And this whole section just really reminds me of a quote from Blaise Pascal, which is, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And I think that's kind of a <laughs> summation of what Diane is talking about here. There is no possibility for her to sit quietly in a room alone. That's not where she can heal. Right. I think the, the real themes, the real tensions of the story are all right here in this conversation, in this section. As we move on from this, though, we are going to get a little bit more of Wolf the Engineer in this story. We've already had a little bit of it, but it's time for some more now. 
First, uh, Dr. Island has been telling them all of these things by speaking through a monkey. We just have to keep that in mind. It's meant to be funny, and, and it is funny, right? This would make a great episode of like a Twilight Zone type TV show or something like that. And when Dr. Island stops speaking, Nicholas says that someday he's going to pull one of these monkeys apart and see its wires and such. The point here is that he thinks the monkeys are robots. The other engineering bit here comes in the form of an explanation about how big this place is. Diane says that they are in or on a satellite and that it's quite large. They could not easily walk the entire circumference of this place. But through some kind of engineering magic, the strip of beach that they are on simply loops around in a walkable circle, even though it's only a segment of the whole island. And on top of that, they can see themselves far up the beach and also far down the beach, like there's something akin to mirrors there. And and this is presumably then what Nicholas saw when he first popped up out of the hatch. I do not fully understand what Wolf envisions here, but I think the point is that it really is just the three of them in this setting. Nicholas, Diane, and Ignacio, and of course then this ethereal presence of Dr. Island. At any rate, Diane does not want to walk on the beach in the rain, so they head inland into the forest, and Diane suggests that Nicholas climb some trees But although he finds bird nests, he doesn't find any eggs for them to eat. And in this scene, there's a a real awkward moment here where Nicholas cups one of Diane's breasts and, and does this seemingly without realizing that he's doing it. And his explanation here serves to remind us that there is, or at least that Nicholas thinks that there is, another consciousness inside of his brain who can't speak but can control one of his arms. Right. Nicholas feels dissimulated as a person. He feels like there are two of him inside of him, and he's embarrassed by what his mind did, his body acting in voluntarily. And there's just also a lot going on in this section as well, a lot of imagery to return to. I want to start with the description of the island and the way that gravity shifts. They begin jumping, and they can jump first three meters and then six meters in the air, because part of the way that the weather works is that gravity shifts to the point where the ocean bed, the sea, essentially becomes the sky. Uh, It's very, very strange. It's a lot of stuff I don't understand. Right. They're actually on the inside of a a globe. And we just, you know, picture a snow globe that's full of water. That's where they are. But on the inside of it, there is uh, an empty pocket of air and land. When they are looking up, they are seeing the direction up, but halfway up that then that direction then becomes down right there's gravity it's it's centripetal force right there's gravity all on the outside of that this is something we're going to see again in wolf and so i guess with the manipulating of the gravity it's by by changing the gravity some of the water that is above you starts to fall down on you oh right right yes absolutely that's a much better description i think than i could have articulated neither of us is an engineer right wolf has actually done probably the best descriptions here (laughs) right um but to me, this this sort of you know dome or inverted dome or half dome, uh, satellite dish, all these descriptions we get, uh, you know, it makes me think of like uh, of holograms for some reason. And we all know Wolf loves holograms and holographs, and with the shifting mirrors and and the way reality is kind of moving around them to accommodate the system they're in. Uh, I don't know. Something about this just calls to mind uh, holograms or holographs and. I'm going to just leave that out there and leave it to the experts to consider if this place is some sort of sophisticated hologram that they're in. Um, But what I really want to point out here in terms of imagery is this moment where they're climbing trees and they're looking for bird eggs, you mentioned, Glenn, um, but also for fruit. What happens is is, is Nicholas climbs a tree and encounters a, a green snake and there's no fruit 
on the tree. And so this must be a reference to the Garden of Eden in some way, that there's no fruit to corrupt the people here, but the rest of the imagery is in play. And I think I just want to point out this reference for now, and we can pick up with this in our discussion episode. Yeah, that's going to be great. And this this whole question of the lack of food on this tropical island, this paradise, really, is a, a bit of a, a mystery. And it's, it's quite interesting, I think. This section of the novella is actually pretty heavy on the engineering, which I just don't think I noticed until I sat down to take notes on it, because it all moves in and out of their conversations. And, and also, I guess, because it's compelling on its own right. So we're going to get some more of this here. And, and actually, this is really kind of how we understand what this world, understand what Dr. Island is, because Diane was brought to Dr. Island on a spaceship and she got to see it from her window and she also got a briefing on the place. So she knows all about it. But Nicholas was restrained on his spaceship because he's violent. And so he knows nothing and has lots of questions. And Diane is able to fill him in. Dr. Island is a, a satellite in orbit around Jupiter, and, and not like a weather satellite or something. Satellite in the term sense of moon. Uh, it's basically a glass ball full of water, as I, I talked about already, with the, the centripetal force kind of pushing the water to the edges, creating space in the middle of it. They're on the inside of it, water kept on the walls, and, and possibly it's artificial gravity, not so much that it's spinning. And so there's this water above them as as well, right? And of course, as I hinted at, right, this is something we're going to see again, right? It's impossible not to be thinking ahead to part of the, the solar cycle here. I mean, right. By the by the time we get to the end of the story, we're going to have a scene that, that mirrors something in the Book of the Long Sun, but it's also very, very closely connected to what is happening in this story. And, I mean, we haven't even gone too deep into the presence of mirrors and fish in this story, which, which you'll <laughs> we'll see in Book of the of the New Sun when we get to that. Well, we are almost at the end of this section of this story here. Nicholas is still full of questions such as, how long have you been here? And Diane doesn't remember, but she knows that it's been a while because the skin on her knees is rough and she used to use lotion to keep them smooth. She goes on to explain that this is something that her father used to make her do. He would rub his hands on her knees and elbows and tell her that if she didn't keep them smooth, she would never find a husband and her mother would be upset with her father for this afterwards. And, and this whole detail is just unsettling, right? We get a sense here that maybe something is not right in Diane's home life and that this maybe is borne out in her psychology and in what has brought her to this facility. But Nicholas also wants to know if there was anyone else here with her and Ignacio. But she gives an answer that indicates that she, too, merely arrived at this strip of beach, uh, even though she's been here for, for quite a while, that this is the only place that she's been. She doesn't know who Ignacio is, but she knows that he must be important. And her reasoning, the, the why she thinks Ignacio is important, is this. Dr. Island is a satellite, an artificial moon around Jupiter with monkey robots and a voice that can speak through waves or something like that, artificial gravity and so on. That's expensive, right? This is some pretty expensive therapy. And the unstated assumption here is that Diane knows that her family couldn't possibly afford whatever it costs to send a person for this type of therapy. And on top of this, Ignacio, as they've been told repeatedly and have seen perhaps a little bit of, Ignacio is homicidal, and the people who run this facility, Dr. Island, or whoever controls Dr. Island, they've left Ignacio here alone with a teenage boy and a young woman who have no protection from him. 
So therefore, they must really be here for Ignacio's therapy because he is from a family that can afford this type of treatment. And the assumption here, obviously, right then is that they don't matter. They're not here for their own treatment. They're here as tools in Ignacio's treatment. And this section ends with the simple statement that at this observation, the look on Nicholas's face startled her. Diane's deduction here really is actually startling. And it's a, it's a masterstroke of Gene Wolfe's to change the stakes of the story in this short paragraph. I mean, our point of view character may not be the main character in the way that we usually think of them in stories, the one whose action is going to impact the world in a, in a meaningful way or whose action is going to be meaningful even to themselves. It totally shifts the focus of the story to the meaning of Ignacio. And it's great. I can't wait to find out what happens next time. But I also want to point out something else that's going on in this section. Nicholas has another memory about Maya after she died and he thinks about the way the space hospital cleaned all the blood from her room or, or from wherever she died by lowering the gravity and, and letting the blood kind of enter into the air and maybe get into some of the vents so they tried to clean the blood before they did you know my reading here is that nicholas really liked maya and really did want to help her but nicholas is a deeply angry person i mean we learn that even when he is on a tranquilizer he can still imagine what he would do if he were angry and perform those actions anyway. And this is another indication of his mind trying to compensate for his body acting outside of his mind's control. So the tragedy here is that he only seems to know how to use his mind to be angry. He doesn't know how to apply that to anything else. The line that he gives here is chilling, right? He says, even when I'm not feeling enraged, I think about the things I would like to do when I am feeling enraged. I do them anyway. And then when I am angry, when I'm not tranquilized anymore, I'm glad that I did them. Utterly chilling lines. I want to go back to thinking about Maya here, though, because this memory that he has is uh, emotional. He seems sad about it as it's intercut here. We're g we've already heard that sadness in the story that he's told. We're going to see more about this. I want to look at the facts in this case, though, or the imagery that we have, because what we're told is that this was a zero-G environment. Uh, there's blood floating in the air, her blood, and she's dead because she has lost blood, presumably, or at least in the process of dying has lost blood. And in order to get the blood all cleaned up, they turn on the gravity so that it will fall to the floor and you can just mop it up, right? We've already seen this imagery before, and it's in the story about the person who Nicholas hurt in this zero-G environment. He is thinking about these as if they're two different stories, but I'm suspicious of that because how many of these zero-G hospitals are there? How many patients are they losing? How many patients are getting injured in these facilities? Yeah, I don't disagree with you that both stories are about Maya. Uh, I'm just not convinced that th this is what led to her death. But we're going to wear our detective hats as we continue these <laughs> recaps. And I think this is a great place to leave this episode. Once again, I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. Head over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of our coverage of this section of the death of Dr. Island. If you'd like to support the show, please join us on Patreon. There's so many awesome bonus episodes on there. You'll help us get to the solar cycle that we've just teased a little bit. You'll help us get there that much more quickly. Next time, we'll be covering up to page 114 of this story. And until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>